So I played this diehard, ice-cold Russian mob boss. Right. Which is, is it my personality? No, but is it me? Oh, hell yeah. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Andrea Such is on the show today. Andrea is an actor, a certified drama therapist, and a social worker. She's also an adjunct professor at Fordham University School of Social Work. Andrea had a recurring role as Riva, a Russian mob boss on TNT's Claws, starring Nisi Nash and Dean Norris, and has appeared in numerous other TV series and films, including The Blacklist with James Spader, John Wick Chapter 3 with Keanu Reeves, Comedy Central's Broad City, Gotham, HBO's Boardwalk Empire, Law and Order Criminal Intent, and The Shield. Andrea was born and raised in Hungary, where she got her master's in teaching and then attended the University of Music and Performing Arts in Vienna, Austria. She moved to New York in the early 90s, where she attended the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. Since that time, she transitioned from model to actor to drama therapist, and I found her journey into these disciplines fascinating, not only because of the crossover between drama therapy and acting, but also because I have personal experience with psychodrama, a form of therapy she's trained to do, which we talk about during the interview. Going into this conversation, I thought it would take a more biographical arc, but we ended up talking about many things outside of her career, like how the pandemic has affected us both personally and how it may end up transforming our culture. That made this interview fairly unique and wide-ranging. So let's jump right into my chat with the lovely and talented Andrea Such. Andrea Such, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so you are East Coast, right? New York? Yes. Actually, I'm in New Jersey right now. I'm hiding out in this heat wave. Yeah. So how are things going over there on the East Coast with the COVID situation? Oh, oh, you're not. Are you on the West Coast? I am in uh, Seattle area. Yeah. Oh, you are. Okay. So, you know, the city is different. I'm very lucky to be here in Asbury Park, which is gorgeous. It's New Jersey. It's the Jersey Shore. We, we do have a house here and I'm here since mid-March. And I have been back to the city early July for an appointment I had. And it was, it was a very different New York than uh, I remembered. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of fear on the streets. It, it's really weird how we're passing a person and it's like a caution. Everybody's wearing a mask, which is really good. It also was challenging to breathe because I was breathing in my own carbon monoxide. So it took me like a day or two to get used to it. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's different. It's, it's definitely different. You know, I mean, that's life. We calibrate and adjust. Exactly. So hopefully we can get back to hugging people and sitting together and laughing, not just yet, but I really hope that. I've been reading a book called The Great Influenza from, I think, two, 2015, but it talks about the Spanish flu of 1918. Yeah. And the parallels between that virus and this one are quite remarkable. But if history is any guide, these things play out and there's a vaccine or a treatment or something or, or the virus just goes away. But yeah, I think we'll get through this. I, I just love you know the way you think because that's hope is everything. Yeah. And my grandmother, uh, my grandmother was born back in Hungary during the Great Influenza. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. that had to be scary for everyone on oh, the planet on the planet at the time. Can you imagine you're just coming out of a world war? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then to think also that the most affected demographic were young, healthy people in their teens and twenties. So they fared worse out of everybody because their immune systems were more robust. It was just a weird dynamic where the immune system worked against you. Mm. Um, so a lot of young people died and, and they died within 24 to 48 hours. It wasn't this prolonged illness. But um, we are digressing quite a bit from your story here, <laughs> Andrea. And uh, so you, well, I've, I've done... Go ahead. No, because it's, it's very current. People are scared. People are dying. It's not okay. We all, you know, somebody coughs or sneezing. What happened to God bless you? Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's not I exactly know. what we think when somebody's sneezing in the room that God bless you right now. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. It's a whole new, it's a whole yeah. new world where yes. we're, you know, somebody sneezes and we look at it as an assault. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a nuclear weapon. So hopefully... Hopefully, it will calibrate, and as you said, it will be a vaccine, and uh, we deal with it the best we can. It's no two ways about it that, you know, it's not an easy time. A lot of people are lonely. A lot of people are depressed. Domestic violence is going up. People are locked together. Conflicts are heightened. So, I mean, I think it is very, very timely that you asked about that and the parallels between um, the 1918 epidemic and this one, because... The emotions must be very similar. Yeah, the, the feelings of isolation and fear. And also what I noticed in the book, I mean, not to go back too much on, on this, <laughs> this book, but the parallels politically too, how there were politicians who refused to accept that this was real and they would continue to have rallies and parades. And this was 1918. So it's such a prescient book because it just shows that we haven't changed at all. <laughs> I have a, to read this book. <laughs> yeah, it's called The Great Influenza, but we and it's it's kind of a deep dive into science and I know you come from a science family and uh, at least your dad's side, so you probably have the uh, the aptitude that I don't have um to to understand some of these concepts in the book, but they really go into the science and the medicine of the virus and the uh, antigens and antibodies and all of that. But yeah, it's a, it's a scary time for us all. And I, I would imagine that your background in therapy and connecting with people through psychodrama has probably helped you make sense of this situation and, and maybe process it with a little more emotional sophistication than other people might be able to do. Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know how uh, you give me a lot of credit. So thank you. And, you know, in the meantime, I removed my glasses and I might look prettier, but I see you as a big blurb, but it's a very handsome big blurb. So <laughs> thank you know, you, I absolutely give up on, you know, seeing you, then I will put it back in. So um, I am trained in drama therapy and uh, psychodrama and drama therapy are siblings, but kind of like Danny DeVito and Schwarzenegger in that movie, Twins. Mm-hmm. So they are similar and they different in many ways. It is an action method. It is a great form of therapy because it's embodied and it hits really deep and really quickly. So I, I, I really like it because there is no time to overthink it, like what I usually do when I'm like going to regular therapy. 
So it's like, boom, it's embodied, it's quick. So I really like it. I don't know if it helps me to deal with the situation better. I also consider myself incredibly lucky because I do have a country hideout. So I'm not in New York City and I wasn't in New York City at its worst. So I think it's, it's just really lucky and it has nothing to do with emotional sophistication. It's just like the circumstantial situation was in my favor. And also I have a partner, so I don't live by myself. Yeah. So I think that the great thing what people were doing probably instinctively is connecting a lot more to others via Zoom, social media. I, I've seen tremendous support towards each other. I've seen more live meetings and and really I think that people were brilliantly calibrating this loneliness and this this need to connect as much as they could given the circumstances. So I, I really enjoyed having Zoom meetings with our friends. We had Zoom dinners with our friends. We hooked it up to the TV and then they were sort of on the big screen having popcorn. And so we did the, the best we could. But that was a huge issue that loneliness and isolation. The other thing what I saw that really came up the concept of hope and under hope meaning that we do trust that there is a certain control I can have over my future, it doesn't matter how small that control is. Right. So what I mean is that, you know, even if that control is that I'm going to take a shower now, or I'm going to walk around the block, or I will call somebody on Zoom. Right. Or, you know, I will watch a funny movie. That's control. So under control, I don't mean the big picture that I have control over the elections or this to end soon, but Whatever I can have control over, I take control over, and that's very empowering. Yeah. So I was trying to do a lot of those when I was feeling the blues, when I was feeling a little down. Science calls it micro goals, which just means that something I can accomplish by five o'clock. Mm, nice. So, and it, and it gives me a, a feeling of accomplishment that, okay, I did it. I said I, I, I will do it, and I did it. So I was creating these little micro goals for myself, like wash up the dishes. That's a big one. I really don't like that. But, you know, like wash up the dishes or meditate, do 10 sit-ups, you know, do something creative. And then I could get creative by how to be creative. Nice. Like, do I read a poem? <laughs> do I check out an IGTV? So, so I really, really very, very consciously when I woke up, I made this little, I call it, I have two, three lists every morning. I have a to-do, to-did. And the tada. What are those? <laughs> so the to-do is those micro goals. Okay. You know, those little laundry list. And I I encourage when I'm working with somebody or I'm I'm using I never tell a client to do something when I'm not doing on myself. So I'm always the guinea pig. So find at least three to five things what you will do today. Micro goals. So there's the to-do list. It's kind of like um give me a puts an address to the GPS. Okay. Does it make sense? Yeah. And then the to-did list, what I did from the day before, hence the name. And that gives me a feeling of accomplishment. Okay. And the tada list is a simple gratitude list. But that list is not with the brain, it's with the heart. Mm. So what I mean is, in, in my practice, I'm working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So how I phrase it, but I think it really, I, I like this phrasing, what makes your heart smile? I like that. So it's not the big thank yous of the universe, you know? So it's not the time to thank God and my mother for living. It's the time to give gratitude that, oh my God, the coffee was yummy. Mm -hmm. That flower is gorgeous. It makes my, 
my heart smile every time I look at it. Or I, I connected with a friend. Or uh, the pizza was yummy. Or I'm just sitting here by the lake and I'm just enjoying the wind on my, on my face. So something that harvests a positive emotion. Because when we are harvesting positive emotions, it changes our biochemistry. Mm. So all of a sudden, this happy hormone starts to flood into our system. Endorphin, dopamine, yeah. um, oxytocin. And that, that enhances actually well-being physically. Is this list, these three lists, are they um, handwritten lists that you create? I, I, I'm older, <laughs> you know, so I, I do enjoy, you know, I always like buy a pretty journal and I do enjoy open the journal and uh, write by hand. But if somebody wants to do it electronically, I think it, it's kind of like very personal who wants what. There are also apps like Gratitude 365 when, you know, you can even take a picture and then write a gratitude list. So it, it, it's, I think it's how, whatever floats your boat. But the bottom line is that we all have a negativity bias because this is how we survived, right? Right. Like even now we have to look out for the bad stuff that's happening so I can dodge it or go against it or, you know, so I survive. So we tend to highlight the negative and uh, take the positive either uh, for granted or not even noticing it because, hey, of course, there's a nice flower. Yeah, of course, the, you know, that's pretty. So what it does is to give the positive an equal chance. It's not ignoring the negative. So think about it this way. Like, let's say I'm sitting in this room now, right? And I have a flashlight. Where do I shine that light? Hmm. Because... I can notice that it's a hot mess, right? Right. Or I can notice that it's a beautiful picture on the wall. I can notice that, you know, oh, I like that poster. That book is really awesome. Or I'm talking to Brian and how much fun is that? Right. The big myth is that this form of science, which is positive psychology, ignores the negative. No, please do not ignore the negative. Negative saves lives. It's very important to see that the train is coming and it won't stop for you. So notice it and act accordingly. So it's not about ignoring the negative, but it's n noticing the positive and give it an equal chance. Just notice that it's there. Right. So the Tada list is kind of like an exercise that works that muscle that your brain starts to search for those things too. That's an interesting concept. I, I've been reading and listening to a lot of Julia Cameron. The Artist's Way is a book that she wrote, and she has this exercise that she's been um, talking about for decades now called Morning Pages. And Morning Pages, I, I've tried this over the last couple of months, and it's wonderful. I wish I was more disciplined to do it every day. But Morning Pages is a pen and paper. She's militant about that. Pen and paper, no computers. First thing in the morning before you look at social media or news or anything like that, and you write out the almost stream of consciousness, the polluted stuff that's circling around as a narrative in your head, the stories that we tell us. And it doesn't have to be creative. It doesn't have to be clever or wonderful. It's actually pretty awful, probably, in terms of <laughs> Uh, in terms of like so, something you would never want to show to anybody else. So it's not designed to be looked at by others. Yeah. But it's a connection. What you're doing is you're, you're getting rid of things that are not helpful 
and you're opening up channels that that are helpful, like you're you're unclogging those creative pathways in a way. And what you're talking about sounds to me like you're really becoming aware of it's almost like a meditative thing where you're you have this awareness that you didn't have before as to the positivity around you. And yeah. you're you're taking time. I mean, what what I hear is self-care. Absolutely. And it is a kind it's it is a form of mindfulness. Right. So the silver lining of COVID for me, especially in early April, when it was like at full force and it was total stay-at-home orders and you know, shelter-in-place orders, that I didn't calibrate yet how to do what I do online. So I had a lot of time. I never in my life had two hours to stare at the ocean mm. or walk around the lake and literally smell the flowers. Like I felt like I'm coming from another planet and every single leaf, I was just like, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. Look at that. that, that. You know, so like, like a little kid. And it was something naively innocent about it that gave me that smile in my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I really couldn't put words to, but it was just like this, this smile in my heart, that positive feeling that I, I felt that it, it generates, mm-hmm. you know, this, this. So that was very interesting to me. I was taking pictures of clouds and posting it on social media. So I apologize, everybody, and thank you for liking it. But it was really just because I wanted to share it, you know? Yeah. And I didn't try to be the guru or the master, but I just like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. I, you know, I just want to share it in case somebody else enjoys it. And it became second nature. To recognize that? Yeah. It became second nature to notice it. I, I've noticed with my consciousness over the last couple of months that I've, I've really started to understand how little we need materially to get by and how much I depended upon leaving the house and doing things, you know, just distracting myself with you know, restaurants and shopping and consumerism and all of those things that are fun, but you don't really need them at, at your core what you need is a can of uh, chicken noodle soup, put it on the stove or the microwave and, yeah. and you, you don't have to make a huge production. You know, meals don't have to be this, this huge production or they can be a huge production and be fun, but at home. And so you start to understand what you really need as a human being to survive and thrive. And so that's a gift I think that we have and a silver lining to this whole thing. It's so interesting that you say that because, again, in April, like I'm calling my mom. My mom is back in Hungary. And the lady was born in 1944 in a bomb shelter. Oh. So she was growing up, you know, at the tail end of the war. Her value system is very different. So I said, how are you, mom? And she said, I'm great. I have two potatoes and an onion. I'm fine. I'm like, what? You don't oh. even say that. But in, in her mind, it was total safety because what you said, right? I mean, she had two potatoes and an onion, so it was okay for another two days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, it's a huge paradigm shift. And it really, it was like a sledgehammer to start to question our own values and our own importance of those values. 
Yeah, so it, it's very, and I don't, I'm, I'm very mindfully not rushing into saying it that it's a good thing because it's definitely not a good thing that people are dying and the deadly virus is out there and small businesses are, are going belly up and, and I can't hug my friends, so it's not a good thing. But definitely it exposed a lot of sides of what probably uh, are food for thought. Yeah. That when we go back, when this uh, vaccine is coming and when we can go back, to life as it was, would we go back exactly to life as it was? Or did it bring in other values that, that will, be, will be calibrated into this new normal? Right. I think the work from home situation is definitely going to change the paradigm moving forward. Even if we wipe this virus out, people now understand that being physically present is not necessary period. And a lot of the things that we do, as much as I love to be physically present and face-to-face with people, the travel time associated with commuting to work and coming back, and I think there's going to be, a re, as you say, a recalibration of what our values are and how we want to spend our time. Yeah, absolutely. And there are some industries, like you know, I have two professions. I do work as an actor and I do work as a therapist. I also teach in universities in social work programs. So, of course, you know, all education is online now. And the tricky part was that we have field training. Like, I know you are a lawyer, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, the field experience is much needed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't know what is it. So, for a social worker, it's a, it's a, we call it field placement for a doctor, it's residency. So I don't know how, how in world they call it, but that is absolute right now. Yeah. So now, you know, there's the calibration that, you know, how do we provide the experience, the hands-on experience to our students? So when they graduate, they feel ready. Yeah. And again, a lot of calibrations came in that, you know, remote placements like hotlines and, and uh, remote work at agency. And, you know, so it's like a huge, huge calibration is the word that keeps on coming into mind. It's like an evolution. Like, how do we do things differently yet effectively? One, one place where I don't see it, but, you know, probably, you know, it, it will all work out like in the acting world, like when can we go on a set when there are 400 people on a movie set and be around each other in a room when there are 20 people crammed in, in this intimate scene, but one is holding the boom, one is holding the camera, then the other one is pulling the focus. So when and how will that happen? And that I miss a lot. Yeah. I miss that a lot. And that seems to to be, and I've never been in that world, but my impression is that it's almost an irreplaceable thing that you, you just can't have have it any other way um, technologically and just from an art standpoint there's no other way to do it i i i really don't know enough on the technical end but it, so we were shooting like I, I was shooting a couple of things on zoom which was a whole different experience but i mean if you and i we have a scene i mean it's not the same that i see you on zoom you know right right not at all it, it's not so it's a lot of i was taking a really good green screen class that's why you see the green screen behind yeah, that's nice. Actually, I just had a green screen class. Uh, so we heard that, that that might be, we might see more of those uh, projects, you know, working with green screen. So I'm sure that people are so inventive and I'm sure that the industry will come up with a lot of things. But right now, Broadway is closed. Film productions are closed. 
a lot of actors are out of work. So that that's kind of like something that, that I really, really miss to the, go to the theater as an audience and as an actor being on stage, sharing that gift, that story with so many people who are like next to each other and that group mind and that that group energy, you know, right. that cannot be, that I can't see to be replaced when you go to a stadium and thousands of people scream because of that song you like, or that ball player hit it, right? Or, you know, so that that's something that I, I really miss. Yeah, it's, it's really sad to think about Broadway. Television is, is one of those things where like you can go on Netflix and, you know, you, there's, the content is everywhere and Hulu and HBO Max, Disney Plus, there's just, there's tons of television content. So I think that people that are into television and film have not really felt the impact yet of that void. But the Broadway folks, the people that go to Broadway shows, or even more importantly, make their living off of set design and being on stage and acting in Broadway shows, that has completely been eviscerated in New York. It's it's devastating. And, you know, I, I would add to it that, you know, in television too, actors are unemployed. Oh, currently. Yeah. Because they're not shooting right now. Yeah. So, it's, it's things are not shooting and this pandemic unemployment assistance is ending the end of the month. We can't go back to work because there is no work there. Like, I'm again, I'm lucky because I'm standing on two feet. Right. right? And you have your therapy and psychodrama. Yeah, and I have my therapy and the teaching and the private clients and whatnot. And, you know, I, uh, I do a lot of little creative projects, like with the Hungarian Cultural Consulate. I'm Hungarian, as you probably hear, I'm not from here. Right. So um, they had this idea to do classic Hungarian poems in English. Oh, I saw those online that you were doing. Yeah, yeah. those are fun, right? And then, you know, we went, you know, a notch up with, with Adam, my the partner who is I'm doing it with because we kind of created this little visual etudes, poetry etudes, you know, with I saw the visuals that. Yeah. and but it's all shot on my cell phone editing on iMovie. That's so cool. <laughs> you know, so it's like there is it's a no budget project and we love it and we enjoy it. So again, you know, I consider myself incredibly lucky and it makes my heart smile. It's what, one of the points, you know, in my Tudal is that uh-huh. That, you know, I, I have the luxury of being out of the city where, you know, I'm in nature. And also I have this little creative project that keeps my creative juices flowing and I can still teach online. And, and you know, so I don't feel it as much as a Broadway actor who were in, you know, in a Broadway show for the past 15 years and boom, it's gone. And our health insurance is that, oh. you know, the pension, the health insurance and you 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 tape the series, but it's not you know residuals are dwindling down, so it's not the same like the you know so it's right. TV and film actors feel it a lot, so trust me, it's not just the stage actors. Probably you are correct because you know that's most noticeable for everybody, for the audience and the actors. But but imagine that you don't have new content on Netflix or Hulu. Yeah, then it'll start to sink in for the audience yeah. and the subscribers. Yes. Yeah. So, so hopefully, you know, that vaccine is coming soon. <laughs> and, and, you know, one thing I've, I've learned over the last year and a half doing this uh, interviewing creatives is that very few actors and filmmakers are making, you know, millions of dollars per year. It, it's, they are working actors and they are hustling. Every job that they get is a hustle. 
And so there, I think there's this disconnect between the viewer and the actor in terms of the viewer thinking that, well, if you're on television, you must you know, be, be in Hollywood and just have it made. And that's not the case from what, what I've seen. It's not the case at all. So when you, when you lose your job, I mean, you could, even if you've been on, you know, 150 episodes of whatever series, you could be homeless. I mean, it's that profound of an impact. Well, hopefully, you know, everybody in the industry knows that it doesn't last forever. Right. So I think that we all, when we have something steady and we have a series, 10 episodes or 100 episodes, you know that, you know, you bank that money because most likely, you know, the show will end or they write you off or, you know, they kill you in the show. And, you know, you get a script and, oh, and they shoot her in the head. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that whoever is in this uh, industry kind of learned that up and down, ebb and flow, uh, nature of the business. But now it's ebb. Like, it's ebb, ebb, ebb. Right. <laughs> because there is nothing going on. And it, it's not just the actor, as you said, it's the set designer, it's the writer, it's everybody. It's everybody who is involved with it. Costume props, everybody. So that's kind of different and scary to me. Right. That, that's one area that, that really, when I think about it, I, I, I need a lot of positive emotions to like, okay, so uh, how can, we, well, you know, and the reason uh, I'm saying it because I do challenge my thoughts. Like I challenge my thoughts when I'm thinking about this, I challenge my fear that it's temporary and it's local. Okay. So under temporary, meaning that it will not last forever. And local, meaning that it's in this one area of my life, not everywhere. Yeah. So when I partialize and, uh, you know, have, have it, don't see it as this big doom, you know, 100% everywhere, all of it, then I immediately have more hope. And when I have more hope, then I have more mojo to come up with those micro goals, come up with those creative projects. What, what makes me happy? How, how can I spend this day that I feel that I accomplished something and I enjoyed it? And that's just like super important. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you read a lot of philosophy and you're a student of how to look at the world. And I, um, the, the, the person that's helped me a lot is Eckhart Tolle in terms of looking at, you know, what's important, like what, what is a crisis and what is not a crisis and, and really sifting your way through those, those mini crises that may be, as you say, you know, compartmentalized in, in the workspace that, that they don't affect your family, they don't affect your future. But yeah, it's, it's important to really look at the world that way, I think. Otherwise, we'll, we'll drive ourselves nuts. Absolutely. You know, it's so interesting because have you seen this show called Hana? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, have you seen season two? No, I just oh, I, I saw that. Everybody watched it. It's awesome. I, I I know it's on Amazon now, right? The season two yes. is now up. Okay. Yes. So you will see how they play with the concept of reality and how brilliant it is. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great show. Good movie too. Oh my god, it's a great show. So. We just binged it, like literally we binged the whole thing in like a week because it was just so good. But that's true. Like also, somebody said that The Matrix is a documentary. <laughs> so it's like depending on which program do you plug in, 
Right. This is how we experience life. Huh. And it's so much easier said than done. But when you think of it, it's so true. Well, now I'm going to definitely watch that season two. And, and is it like a fully ado? You know, it's like an illusion that, you know, two people buy into or, you know, like, like, what is the, like, what is the fine line between a complete delusion and, you know, like choosing to accept a reality that makes me happier? Mm -hmm. Well, it's for everybody to calibrate and find out again. I mean, this word calibration, I think it's like our, our central theme today. Yeah. But it's like, do I, do I choose to look at the news and do, like, I have friends who list on Facebook every crime, you know, what happened in the past week. Why do you do that? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the benefit of that? It can be dangerous. Yes, we get it. But you know what? Like, do you want to spiral yourself down into a, a complete dark spiral? Or, or do, you, do you want to find the things that work? And again, both are important. So let's do both. So, so, you know, those are just like, it's such a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true that you can really influence your thoughts and how you feel. Well, um, one of the podcasters I've listened to for a long time is Tim Ferriss, and he has written a few books like Four Hour Workweek and Four Hour Chef, and he's kind of a self-help type of guy, but he does some fascinating interviews with people trying to deconstruct their success. and. One of the things that he's tried to do emotionally and also from a time management standpoint is to completely remove himself from the news cycle. So he does not follow news typically. And his idea of getting up to date on the news is let other people do it and talk to them at the water cooler. This is back when we had water coolers and there was an actual workplace, but you can hear people's perspective on the latest politics and the outrageous things that are happening, but you don't have to be sucked into that narrative because it really is an awful reality to, as you say, be posting all of the, the latest outrageous things that have happened, just post them on Facebook. And it's not, it's not a healthy place to be. And it really is distracting from what is important, what is truly important, which is our own path forward and the things that we can do to be happy and find peace and really be fulfilled in life. And it's not, you know, social media is kind of the antithesis of that existence. And I'm sorry, we're, we're not even talking about your career here, but we're it's okay. We <laughs> it's talk still fascinating. about it. I'm sure that the, the listener who will listen to it is the listener who has to listen to it. You right. know? So I, I truly believe that we find the podcast and the project that, that kind of resonates something that we, we need to discuss or disagree with or think about. I would never admit to it that I, we don't have a TV. We have a fire stick, so I don't watch the news. Yeah, I don't either. And again, you know, it's, uh, it might be like, you know, I'm putting my head in the sand. Maybe I do, but I feel good. Yeah. I, I have friends that, and, and relatives that are apolitical. Whatever chip they put in their, their brain, they've chosen to have a reality that does not include politics at all. And I don't get it because I'm very political and I get fired up probably more than I should about politics and the elections that are coming up. But you know, if you look at people that chose to not have politics as part of their reality, they're a lot happier <laughs> than blissful ignorance, I guess. I think it's so important, but how to say it? It doesn't have to be important for everybody, you know? So I, I see kind of like 
the world as a big orchestra and everybody plays an instrument and all instruments are equally important and together they make a beautiful sound. Mm. But I'm not going to ask the violinist to learn the oboe track. Right. Or I'm not going to ask the drummer to play, you know, uh, the piano solo. Like politics is not my gift and not my passion and not my interest. And it doesn't take away the fact that it's incredibly important. I'm just not good enough at it that I could be as, as useful to, to the world than with other things what I know much more about. Right. So I'm not saying that something is more important than the other or, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very, very, very important. But I think that in that orchestra, that's not my instrument. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. I, I've toyed around with this concept of highest and best use, and everybody has a highest and best use. And it's not, I didn't come up with the term. It was a, a financial advisor who was trying to convince me to hire him. He knew I was an attorney and he was like, hey, you could, you could figure this out, how to trade stocks and buy bonds and invest in your 401k. You're smart enough to do that, but is that your highest and best use? And ever since I had that conversation, I've thought a lot about it because I think that's true. We, we all have gifts and strengths and weaknesses and various aptitudes that make us either suited for politics or science or teaching or trial work like I do. And why try to do something that does not fit in with that highest and best use? It's a struggle. I, I completely agree with that. Many people ask me, what do I think success is? And I think success is when you're lucky enough to make a living of your highest and best use of mm. your life and your time. I like that. Because, you know, again, it's like so subjective that what is success? Is it having an award? Is it having a series regular? Is it, yes, 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 it is, it is, it is. But also when I wake up happy in the morning, that's success. And it changes by the day and by circumstances that what do I think success is? Really, it's not, it's not always the same. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you. Yeah, well, I, I think we, our ideas of what success is evolves over time. And usually it's a function of age and maturity because when we're in our teens and 20s, I think we all look at maybe money and, and stardom and notoriety as being a big part of what success means. And then later in life, we seem to just have a more mature understanding of what happiness is and what fulfillment is. And that whole, like, the whole concept of fulfillment, do you feel fulfilled? If you would have asked me that question when I was 24 years old, I don't think I would have been able to answer it. I, I probably would have had to look it up in the dictionary. Like, what, what do you mean fulfilled? I, I don't get that. You mean happy? But yeah, over time, I've really looked at, like you say, do I get up in the morning and am I excited to do whatever I'm doing? Is this my highest and best use? It sounds like you have found there is a, a tie-in, at least what I've read and seen online of your work, that there's a connection between psychodrama and acting. 
Oh, God, yeah, of course. I mean, it was a connection from the get-go. Brecht was involved. Peter Lorre was involved. I mean, Moreno, he was a theater guy who, who invented psychodrama. Uh, I just want to clarify that uh, my degree is in drama therapy. So I, I, so I, I do know about psychodrama, but, uh, you know, that's not my primary degree. So my primary degree is in drama therapy. Mm -hmm. but, but, of course, I mean, watching TV is drama therapy. I mean, when you watch TV, don't you identify with one character? Or don't you hate one character? Why do you think it is? Yeah. You know, I mean, every story, every story is something that, that brings up a, a part of me that is either a shadow or, or, a, or, or a desired best self. Yeah. Like a hero. So it's when I was, um, I was in this show called Claws. Oh, yeah. I, I saw. I saw you in that show, and uh, I was very, impre very impressed with the recurring role that you had in that it show. It was so fun. So I yeah. played this this diehard, ice cold Russian mob boss. Right. Which is is it my personality? No, but is it me? Oh hell yeah! Yeah, totally. Like Riva is such a part of me, and I see as actors, we all get that character. And one of my favorite acting uh, teachers, Tim Phillips says that one of his clients used to say that it's you bent that role is you bent like it, it's on your spectrum <laughs> right it's on your spectrum so i totally see riva in me you know on a bad day when somebody pisses me off or when i feel used or something absolutely but is it my personality no so how much fun is to play the parts which are in you somewhere mm -hmm. but you can't really do it in your everyday life and then in a psychodrama session how much fun is to let that part come out yeah and how i have a conversation with that part how do you help me how do you hurt me how can we work together how can it go away when I don't want you here? You know, so it's just like really an amazing tool. And, you know, how I look at it, like professional performance and uh, performance as therapy is the same thing. It's just like, how, where, where do you put the dial, right? Because it's a calibration between also the audience's role. Mm -hmm. Like in professional performance, we do it for the audience. And in uh, performance as therapy, we do it for the participant. I watched that uh, psychodrama. You, you posted about it on Instagram, the, the history of psychodrama. Yeah. And I watched that on Amazon, and, and I didn't realize how far back it went, that discipline. Well, you watched it? Yeah, yeah. I went, I went and uh, got it on Amazon. But it's, it's, it's the reason I'm so fascinated with psychodrama is, I, well, first of all, I love the way that you've talked about it. And I think it was you online that said it, it allows you to be your own screenwriter in a way, because you have this, maybe this narrative, this story that is a trauma of some kind that's in your psyche. And it's been the same trauma with the same outcome and the same emotions for perhaps decades. But if you go in through psychodrama and you play it out with actors, maybe not professional actors, but people in the room who are part of the exercise, you become, and that group becomes kind of the screenwriter for how that can play out differently. And that can be therapeutic. And also, I have experience with psychodrama because in a lot of the, the seminars that I've been to, because trial work is all about story. How do you find the story of your client's accident or case? And 
to do that, you have to do a deep dive by stepping into their shoes, into their skin through role reversal. Absolutely. And so I've done psychodrama workshops that have blown my mind where people are, I mean, this, this is going to sound weird to my listeners, but you know, there are people just sobbing on the floor in the fetal position because they've tapped into something and this group has tapped into something that has not been touched in, in years or decades. <laughs> and, and then they come out of it and, and they're a, like a brand new person. They just have a, a whole new lease on life. And I, I, I'm not overstating it when I say that. It's a very, very powerful form of therapy, but also not just therapy, but just finding the story, really what, what happened here and what is going on emotionally that is blocking you for whatever reason. Why can't you get past this? And so I love that you, you do that type of work and that you integrate it into your, your, the acting. It, it doesn't seem to be a, a big distinction or a separation between acting and, and psychodrama. No, it's not. In my mind, it's not. But those jobs are completely separate. Right. You know, so it's, you know, in, in professional performance, I never even say that, you know, I do drama therapy and psychodrama. And most people know if they, you know, know me, but it, it has nothing to do with other in my two separate jobs, but it has everything to do with each other as a human being. And now that you say, I do have a lot of, uh, lot of uh, colleagues who do psychodramatic work with trial lawyers, because as you say, storytelling for opening arguments, closing arguments, and then they're all, it's, it's like super important. And, and I, I know that some places do have psychodrama workshops, which is like awesome. But also this new, new concept that is, I think it's Tara Brock called radical forgiveness. And I don't like the word forgiveness because in my mind, it means that, oh, I forgive you for what you did. Mm -mm. It's not forgiving the person. It's taking away the charge. What do you mean taking away the charge? Taking away the power of my emotions about it. Okay. Taking away, like if I'm engaged at an eight, if I forgive, it means that I let go the importance of that. I, I, take, I take my power back. It's never about for, forgiveness, as I now understand it, is not about being okay with what happened or making it okay what that person did to me. It's about taking back my power that my whole life is not around that event. And probably I'm not making sense. So let, let me tell you a little story. It's not my story. It's like a, a classic story about that. When two prisoners of war are talking and one say that, well, can you forgive uh, our captors? And one says, no, never. And the other one says, no, they still have you in prison, aren't they? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, so that's what I mean, that lessening the charge, like my activation by it. Got it. That doesn't make that event okay at any level. Yeah, the, and Eckhart totally talks about that in A New Earth, about how you can't really control what happens around you, but you can control your reaction to what happens around you, which is not a new concept. I mean, Eckhart totally didn't come up with that. It's a very Buddhist concept, I think. But it, that sounds like what you're talking about is you're, you're taking control over your own reaction to it and also the importance that you place on it in terms of how it's going to affect you emotionally. I don't know originally who came up with it, but many people contributed to Viktor Frankl mm -hmm. in uh, his work, The Man's Search for Meaning. 
when he says that between, uh, you know, that, that gap is where your power lies between the stimulus and the response. But I just read it that actually it wasn't him originally, but I couldn't, I, I, I don't remember now who it was. I don't know if I, I, if you know that my partner just wrote a book on hope. Um, no, I don't think so. Is that, and that's not the book that you wrote the foreword for, is it? No. Oh, okay. That's, that was the three female, you wrote a foreword in that book about the three female heroes, right? Yeah. Yeah. The heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, yeah. tell me about the book about hope. Okay, so that's called Learned Hopefulness, and it's, it's a book on uh, how can hope be learned. Hmm. It can be, and it's really, I, I read it a couple of times, obviously, because my partner wrote it, so I, I, I read it as he was writing the chapters, and then I read the advanced reader copy, and I, I read the copy, and I find it incredibly helpful because it lists the latest research on it. So it's not like, oh, it works. It's like, and it works because, and boom, 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 150 references. Yet you don't have to read all the 150 books because he gives you the skinny. And then he gives you exercises. How to, how, it's a muscle. Mm -hmm. It's like when you go to the gym, like how to work that muscle that you know it is the good stuff. Mm-hmm. How to, how to work that muscle that you, you believe that you have control over your future. It doesn't matter how big or small. Like, how can you form that habit right. that it becomes second nature? I like that because it provides sort of an objective scientific approach to a problem that, you know, if someone is feeling hopeless and they go in for therapy or they're talking to somebody about their inability to have hope. I think there's a danger of being in this territory where there's nothing tangible to grab onto. But if you have lessons and you're saying, look, this is actually a very teachable thing. Mm -hmm. Let me show you how to do it. Here are some exercises on how to do this. Yeah. You're probably going to reach people that are really otherwise cynical about therapy and, and the whole concept of changing you know, the wiring of your brain that way. You're right. So, it, yeah, it sounds like a practical guide. It's a practical guide. And by the way, he is a therapist with 35 years of clinical experience. He's the guy with me in the psychodrama video. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, you know, that stuff really works. I do use it with my private clients. I use it in my own life. So, so what, what I would like the listener to take away from this whole thing that, yes, there are things you can do to be a happier person. And it's a bumper sticker because it is true. <laughs> you know, and every cliche is true somewhere. That's why they become cliches, right? Right. <laughs> so you, you now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you some questions about how you got into acting. And I know that you, you really have a fascinating upbringing in the arts and science because of your parents. Mm. And, uh, and you, you traveled in the Hungarian choir and you were a professional violinist. But after that stage in your life, how did you find acting as your calling and your highest and best use? One of the stories I was sharing in that uh, foreword that I knew it since I was four. I just didn't pronounce it. My mom took me to the audition because she noticed that, you know, I have a talent for music. I have a talent for performance. I was reciting poems. I was singing, I was dancing around. So, so she noticed it and she took me to that audition. So at six years old, I was in this choir and it's not just singing. I mean, we were like reciting 
uh, lyrics, you know, as it was a poem, we were doing little cute, you know, duets like the, the cat duet. So it was, it was a very active form of performance. And then I, I started to, I was trained in opera. So I was an opera singer. I sang in La Scala. I did the Stockhausen opera in La Scala. And then I noticed that that's not for me. It's, I don't like it, you know? So it's like, and if I don't like singing in La Scala, then what would I like as an opera singer? So I, I went towards musical. I adored musical. Okay, check. So from that again, you know, I knew I loved performing. I, I knew I loved to be on stage. I knew I have tremendous respect to the audience. Tremendous. Because we, without the audience, I'm, you know what I'm saying? So I learned how to respect the audience tremendously. And, and that just grew and grew and grew. So when we were doing The Wizard of Oz, 16 shows a week, we did not drop one of them. We not, did not drop that 15 show because that audience, 5,600 5, of them were sitting out there like this, waiting for that rainbow song. And if I was dead, I still pulled it 200% and everybody else did on stage. And that's, that's what I adore about Broadway, you know? And, and, yeah. and, you know, they are just soldiers of the art, you know? They just like do everything for the audience. And I, I have tremendous respect for that. So it was just like, and then it just like merged. The story, what I, I, I said, and I don't know if you have time. Yeah. So when it really hit, I was 16 and my mom is a pianist, right? Piano teacher. It was an actress who she was coaching. Her name was Zhuzha, Susan. So my mom was helping Susan to get ready for this musical, I Love My Wife, which is an American musical. And the Hungarian theater did it, of course, in Hungarian, songs in Hungarian, everything. And my mom helped uh, Susan to learn the song. So in exchange, we got two tickets for the show. And we got two tickets for the show, not only to see the show, but then we could go backstage and we could go up to her dressing room. And she was sitting in her dressing room. It was a little theater. She was wearing a burgundy bathrobe, sitting by the window. Just beautiful girl. She was kind of like Marilyn Monroe, but very lanky, you know? And she was like putting on her fake lashes. And my mom is talking to her and I'm sitting there. And that was like, you know, when you get that gut punch, but mm -hmm. screaming, that's what I want to do. Yeah. So that was the gut punch. Nice. And then check this out. It was in 82. So now you did the math. Yeah. I was born in 66. So in 82, 84, whatever. doesn't matter. So two years later or three years later, Getting my first engagement as a dancer, singer, you know, it's like a variety show. And uh, it's opening night is December 6th. I think it was 984, but I'm not sure. December 6th. So I'm sitting in front of my station. I'm putting on my fake lashes. And I'm like, oh, my God. Full circle. <laughs> it was the same theater. And I was in the same room, in the same chair. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It didn't even dawn on me until that moment. So that gut punch that you felt, yeah, it, it sounds like that's an opportunity that really your parents are 100% responsible for. In other words, you know, some people don't really get to that point where they even are in a position where they're going to feel that gut punch because they aren't taken to the play or taken backstage and given those experiences. So what, what are your thoughts on, on how, to find, how to find that gut punch, you know, so that you know what your calling is? It finds you. Yeah? It finds you. 
I truly believe it finds you. Because I didn't know. And yeah, my mom took me there. But, you know, it could have been a trip with the school. Or it could have been I'm seeing on TV. Or it could have been anything else. And, you know, my father said that it's great that you're jumping around, quoting, and, you know, dance around and sing around, but please have a real diploma. So he made me, that was our deal. He made me to go to teacher's college. So I did the two things parallel. I was playing at the theater every night and I was going to teacher's college. The backup plan. And God bless him for for this because, you know, look what what my second leg is now, you know, Mm -hmm. my second calling. And that I knew when I was six. Because I entered elementary school, and that was my first grade teacher, Auntie Margaret, who looked like a supermodel. I mean, it was like ridiculous. She had like a mini skirt and Texas hair and cat eyes and everything. And she was so smart and she was so sweet. And I looked at her, and it was, that was the gut punch in teaching. Mm. So the teaching gut punch came first. So you've got multiple callings, basically. Yes, I think I really have these two main things, but then, you know, they feather out to to so many other things. So I really, I knew it, but I didn't know it. So those who who think you don't have a calling, I, I would invite you to go back to this early childhood and just go back and think about what was something you really enjoyed doing. Because many gut punches are hiding in there. (laughs) (laughs) And they came out when we think back or look back or, you know. So what, what, what was going on in your 40s that resulted in a midlife crisis? Because that's the way I've, I've heard you describe it online, but I don't know that I've really understood what was happening that was a crisis in that stage of your life. I think I became too needy with the acting and modeling thing. And whenever we're needy, it's not sexy and it's not desirable. So whenever I entered an audition it was like, gimme, 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 you know, instead of like, hey, let's have, have some fun. This is what I have. So anxiety took away the playful, interesting flavor. So that was one. And uh, then also, it was one year when my father died, my husband died, and I watched 9-11 happen from my window. Oh, my goodness. That was a little too much. Yeah. You know. Pretty heavy. Yeah. So I stopped eating. I dropped two sizes. So I lost, I was a fit model. I don't know if you know what it means, but it's kind of like a live mannequin. Like they try on the clothes on you and you give feedback, you know, so you have to be a perfect size. And for my height, I was a perfect eight. So I dropped down to a four. So I lost all my clients. So I literally had no money to pay my rent. My friends were feeding me. I was going back and forth between Hungary and and uh, New York, I didn't know what to do. My mom was devastated. You know, my, my father just dropped dead like he wasn't sick or anything. Then my husband got a stage four cancer diagnosis and he was gone in eight months, boom. Oh. You know, and then in the midst of all this, I'm like looking out of my windows and, you know, the towers are like, like sandcastles. So, and that, that blew the fuse. Yeah. Uh, that would blow anybody's fuse. Yeah. Yeah. But it really blew the fuse. And it blew the fuse for a long time. And then, again, this, this hope, and, and there is research on it that it can go two ways. People, and actually the research were, was done on 9-11. I wasn't part of this research as a participant. I read it. The researcher is Tedeschi and Tedeschi. 
So they looked at people, that some people got PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, and some people exhibited PTG, which is post-traumatic growth. Meaning that they like, shit, I almost died. I'm not going to do things I don't want to do. I'm going to open my own restaurant. Or I'm going to do my life that I enjoy my life. So it sort of hooks into a higher purpose, and you start to do things that really matter. What, how did you call it? Your highest calling? Uh, highest and best use. Yeah. Highest and best use. Because we realize that life is so short, it can go like, like this. And, you know, I'm going to make every moment worth living. So I think it was a little bit of a combination of this, you know, for me and noticing that I really love acting and I love performing. I don't have enough control over my life. So how can I have enough control over my life? And for me, you know, since I had a degree from Europe in education and psychology, that was like a no brainer that I'm going to go back to grad school, you know, and, and, you know, I, I pick up that leg and I'm going to stand on two legs. And then I, I did go back to grad school. And, you know, as you hear, this is my third language. So it was like super scary. Like, can I pull this, you know, mm-hmm. my third language with all these papers and, you know, reading the books and reading academic stuff and writing the papers and doing this and doing that. And I'm like, you know what? If I don't, I just drop out. You know, what? what, what I'm going to do it. So I did it. And, you know, this, this, this I like to talk about for many reasons, because those of you who listen, I'm sure at least a handful of people were faced with similar issues. And I just want you to know that there is life after and there is way out of it. And I just want you to know that if you allow it, you can totally get out of this gem. And it was a couple of moving parts what I needed to do. Like I had to stop the poor me victim gang. And it sounds like you turned those traumas into an awakening. That's what post-traumatic growth is. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't invent it. Like it's happening to people, right? So be the one who it's happening to. Don't be the one who, 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 who crawls up. You know, I, I crawled up to in a ball for like almost a year. So that's okay to have this grieving period. And to, you know, that's another new thing about depression, the newest research. This is the default mechanism of humans to conserve energy. Really? It's not helplessness that's learned. It is hope that's learned, you know, because we all, what, what do you do when something, you just conserve your energy and you like just shut down? Right. According to Marty Seligman, who became famous with learned helplessness, he came up three years ago and he said, I was wrong. It's the default mechanism. Hmm. I'll have to look into that because I've heard a lot about learned helplessness, but I haven't heard like your partner's book, you know, Learned, learned Hope. That's, hope Circuit. Yeah. Okay. That's, the, that's the new one on that. A lot of interesting things out there. And, you know, if, if there is something that the listener or, the, or, or the, the audience gets out of it, it just like, don't give up. There, there are ways out. There are so many great group, uh, books and podcasts and coaches and therapists that, you know, will be there to assist you with getting over this hurdle that just don't, you know, don't, don't give up because it, it would be such a shame. <laughs> so what, what practical advice would you give to a room full of young people, uh, maybe high school age, college age people that are wanting to get into acting and um, putting aside the COVID situation? which we hope will resolve and we'll get back to normal in terms of shooting 
and uh, production schedules. But what advice would you give them in terms of film school, drama school, or no school at all, just jumping right in and going to auditions? Just practical advice for how to get their foot in the door in that industry. So I think the first thing, what I would say that do it for the right reason, do it because you love to do it and you enjoy it. And you would just be not you if you could not act or make movies or write. Don't do it for the fame and you're going to be this and that because that's not guaranteed. The only thing that is guaranteed that if you love to do it, you will enjoy the work. And no matter how, you know, if it's self-taught or schools, I mean, of, of course, schools has it figured out, you know, because they do it for decades, you have to have the skills or else when this opportunity comes and uh, if somebody can pull it, that's an issue. So skills are very important. And it's kind of like a thing that no matter how sweet somebody is, if you're not skilled and if you're not good, you know, it's... <laughs> People You'll find out find out pretty quickly if that's the case, right? Right. You know, and, yeah. and and you know, in this industry, I think excellence is at the very, very high point of value. And if it stops being fun, either find a way how it can be fun again. Like there are so many ways to do, you know, a creative project in your living room. I'm doing it now with the poems. So when I know that I'm not enjoying it anymore. I press the reset button and figure out why. Can it be fun again? And if I ever get to the point that it's not fun, I'm going to take a hiatus from it. Well, I think that's great advice in life just in general. No matter what profession you're in, if you're not having fun, you really got to look at why that is and how you can fix it so that you are having fun. Talk about cliches. We've talked about cliches a lot on this on this interview, but you know, they say if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I think that's what you have to gravitate toward. Now, there are practical considerations, of course. We all have to make money and put food on the table and save up for retirement. But I, I really have, over the last 20 years, looked at fun and joy. I would say joy more than fun mm-hmm. as kind of my guiding light in whether I still want to do trial work or podcasting. Yeah, that, that's a luxury again, you know, what, what you and I, we do. Because, you know, many, the pushback usually what probably both of us is getting, then, you know, how do I put food in the table? Right. Okay, so I don't know how you're going to put food in a table, so I can tell you how I put food in the table. When I came here with $200 in my pocket, and I thought I had a lot of money, uh, not speaking the language, going to a school where, you know, my third language, and now I'm talking about the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, because that was my first, this is how I came to the States. I got a scholarship there, right? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So, you, you were literally blown into the studio, weren't you? Yeah, yeah I was literally blown into the, uh, the building, and I, I was just like, yeah, why not? I tried to audition, and probably that's what they took me, because again, if I would have went in like... <sighs> You know, it's not the same like, yeah, let me sing this Hungarian song for you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like entertainment. Like, how dare, she, how dare she do this? So anyhow, I mean, it might sound like a lot of fun that you move across the pond, you know, with no family, with 200 bucks in your pocket, going to acting school in English that you don't speak and being graded on Lady Mac. In, <laughs> right. in British English, but it wasn't that much fun. So I did a lot of jobs I didn't want to do. 
right? A lot of waitressing, a lot of crappy like cleaning stuff, you know. And then I was like, how can I do something that pays me money that actually helps me because we always learn what we teach. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So I went back to the Actors Work Program and I got trained to how to teach English as a second language. So I was teaching English as a second language to a kitchen workers. Every busboy in Health Kitchen was speaking with a Hungarian accent. <laughs> All That's of them. Great. That's but then, great. you know, that was kind of the first thing. I enjoyed it. I got paid for it. So I started to figure out how to do jobs that I enjoy or I don't hate or however you want to put it, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then again, it's like, you know, noticing the good thing that more and more doors opened, right? Then I got a, a second company where I, <laughs> I was teaching English as a second language for Russian cleaning ladies, you know, and then they spoke with the Hungarian accent. <laughs> so, so all that stuff. And then I was like, oh, I was modeling at home, you know, back in Europe. Can I do that? So I, I started to go to modeling agencies, you know, then I started to do get little jobs. Then, you know, so as soon as I started to think about it, that, you know, how can I do something that I don't hate or enjoy, I started to see more of them. So that's another bumper sticker that whatever you pay attention to grows. But it's again, it's very true. Yeah. There's an intentionality to what you're doing. Yeah. So just, just, pay, just put it in the computer that, you know, what can I do what I like? Right. Yeah. What is something I can, I can do that at least I don't hate? So what are you looking forward to right now? I know that production is shut down across the board. I've heard through the grapevine that a few things are starting to light up in, in Los Angeles area. But what are you looking forward to from uh, professionally right now from an acting standpoint? From an acting standpoint. Okay. So my big, I really, really enjoyed, you know, working on Claws. It was wonderful. I love the team. I love the recurring part of it, right? I, I, the security of it. Everybody becomes like family. Like it, it was really, really awesome. So uh, professionally, the big dream would be to get a series regular part or get like a recurring type of show guest star. The big, big dream would be to all this in a production, American production that shoots in Hungary. <laughs> in oh, US, yeah. Because it's so <laughs> many. So, you know, so if I would be a series regular on a hit TV show, which I just adore, and some episodes shoot in Hungary, like right now, that would be like a, um, something that I would really, really make my hard smile. Right. But other than that, everything that I gladly give my name to, prestigious, fun, great people, great stories, something that, that I am just proud and honored to be part of uh, with a great juicy role, which is fun for me. And, you know, I can like sink my teeth in and, 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 uh, you know, have fun with it. And the people, the people, the people are the most important part of it. Well, that Claus cast, I mean, what, what a cast that oh. was with Dean Norris and all those wonderful actors. Everyone. And such a, a fun premise too, you know, didn't take itself too seriously. Oh, but, you it's know, so it's fun. And we yeah. were shooting in New Orleans, you know, and when you shoot and, you know, very few people were from New Orleans. So it was like being in camp, you know, hey, you want to go mm -hmm. get something to eat? Hey, right. you listen to some music. It was just amazing. It was so much fun. 
And I just love them to pieces. And with many, many cast members, we're still in touch and we're texting or meeting up if we are, you know, in the same city. So that was an amazing experience. But other shows, so that was like my longest experience with the same team. But other shows like on the blacklist, when um, we had this flashback scene with the young Katerina Rostova and I was playing her mom. And we're still in touch. I mean, I just, just love her to pieces, Lotte Verbi. Like awesome people. TV, it, you become family so quickly because the work is so intense and the connection, the bond is so strong. And I just adore, I adore that connection. You know, what, what, uh, what a TV show or a film set establishes so quickly. Is it different on television than film in terms of that bond because of the, the longer... Uh, you know, the season-long character arcs and everybody's just there together for a longer period of time? Or do you find that same collegiality in, in films too? I haven't done enough film. So hopefully when you ask me in a year, I can say that. One film I was on for 90 days, I was a stand-in. I was standing in for Meryl Streep. Oh, wow. Which was amazing because, you know, she was my third Ignite moment where I was writing about her in the book. Uh-huh. Like when I saw Meryl Streep on Out of Africa, that was another gut punch that I want to be on the screen. And then I had this opportunity to stand in and rehearse for her. You know, it was, um, I, I had a chance to rehearse the lines and the whole blocking. So it was really cool. And I, I got to be in the same room with her and watch her work, which was just a priceless experience. And, what a wonderful person. Oh my God. Just, just an amazing human. And so t- like for me, she is the actress, you know, who is on the pedestal for me. Mm-hmm. Just having this experience. So that was an experience that we really established with this team and, and, and family-like feel. But I wasn't an actor. I was a crew. But it was lovely. So I, I don't know enough about how is it to be an actor on a long, you know, with like so many days on a film because I, I never had it so far. The most I had like two days, three days. With John but Wick, I, John Wick part was a couple days or the John Wick uh, three? It was two days. Yeah. It was the first day we ran out of time. And so I was there for two days. It was wonderful. Just, just really wonderful. The, the time wasn't enough for me to see if it would be the same experience, you know, when I'm in New Orleans for a year. Right or, you know, flying in and out. But I, probably it is. You know, I always won the cast and crew lottery, meaning that I never had a bad experience so far on a film set or a movie set or a TV set. So I'm, I'm just really, really grateful. And I just love this work. I love this work so much. So I really hope that the industry will get back to <laughs> so we can have fun again soon and produce a lot of movies that makes lives more beautiful and cheerful. I was at, uh, I was at Sundance this year as a member of the press with press credentials. And so I was on the red carpet asking questions as they were going into their movie premieres. And one of the questions, and I, I didn't know what I was doing on the red carpet, by the way, I'm not a big <laughs> press person, but for some reason they let me in. And uh, one of the questions I would ask repeatedly of actors that I knew had done television and film was, what do you prefer, television or film, and why? And every single person said basically the same thing. It doesn't matter. It's about the story. And especially with the way content is available now, 
when you go onto Netflix, there, there's not a huge distinction between movies and television series. It's, it's all in the same kettle. And so I don't think actors are looking at it differently these days, at least based upon the interviews that I've done. Are you leaning toward film? Is that something that you're, you have ambitions for to do more work in, or does it matter to you? It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is really it's the story, it's the role, and the people. Yeah. For, for me, the people, you know, it's like Claus would not have been the same if the cast and crew and, and the creative team wouldn't have been so fun to be with. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all about the people. It's a lot about the story and it's a lot about the role. <laughs> so this is, this is how I see it. And, you know, the stage too, I was touring for two years with The Wizard of Oz, with Mickey Rooney as the wizard. Mickey Rooney? Oh, fun. And Eartha Kitt as the Wicked wow. Witch. Wow. Can you imagine the stories over pizza? <laughs> yeah. It was what a cast. Fabulous. We lived together. We worked together. It was family for two and a half years. I mean, we were renting rooms, houses together. It's just amazing. So if the team is not good, you know, the experience is not the same. So that's also how casting is so brilliant because we all come along like, I don't know how they do it. It's all, everybody was perfect for the role and we all came along. <laughs> so it was just really, really cool. So that's, that's an experience that, that will be in my heart forever. Well, it's been, it's been a lot of fun talking to you and uh, I, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know that you don't have, um, shooting going on right now, but you are a busy person with your practice and your coaching and your teaching. And so thank you for talking to us. I learned a lot. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what listeners think about your, your story. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. It was awesome. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>